Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, as well as a very special moment that we'll have at the end of this podcast. And we'll leave you guessing for that, although if you listen frequently to the show, you probably already know. But, Jim, let's start with the good news and the latest jobs report from the month of April. CNBC. The U.S. jobs machine kept humming along in April, adding a robust 263,000 new hires, while the unemployment rate fell to 3.6 percent, the lowest in a generation, the Labor Department reported Friday. Non-farm payroll growth easily beat Wall Street expectations of 190,000 jobs and a 3.8 percent jobless rate. Average hourly earnings growth held at 3.2 percent over the past year, a notch below Dow Jones' estimate of 3.3 percent. The monthly gain was 0.2 percent, below the expected 0.3 increase bringing the average to $27.77. The unemployment rate uh, overall, as we said, 3.6% lowest since December 1969. Uh, The one part that uh, we'd like to see better, 646,000 new people uh, not in the labor force. And so the non-participation rate is up to 96.2 million. So still some work to be done, Jim, but uh, beating expectations once again, lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. Pretty sure we'll take that. Right now, there's probably some uh, Democratic House member. It's not the lowest unemployment rate in five decades. It's only the lowest unemployment rate in 49 years. So check your facts there, Jim and Greg. Uh, Look, you know, would would we prefer to see labor participation be going up instead of down? Yeah, you know, is that a chunk of why it went all the way down to 3.6? Sure. Um, But this is still really, really good job report. Great job of hires. Great to see the wage growth going. Look, for a couple months now, there's you know we, we saw the tax cuts. We saw the sense of, okay, there was this nice little uh, boost in the early years of the Trump presidency. Uh, the argument from some folks on the left is, you know what, this is a sugar rush for the stock market and the economy. It wasn't going to be short-lived. Um, it was just kind of a, a quick uh, kind of emotional reaction. It was not based on solid ground and solid growth and long-term projections of economic health. Uh, it was it's a sugar rush. It was probably bad for our cholesterol. Uh, and all kinds of other things. Well, it seems to be looking pretty good. It, this is not something we're now, you know, getting pretty well into 2019. Um, and this is a roaring economy with the, the hiring rate going up. And all of this, by the way, like we should be shaking through the effects of the government shutdown and other things that uh, impeded it. You and I are, are by and large free traders who are not enamored with the uh, the tariffs. But it's worth noting that they are not having a terrible effect on job creation. And just kind of sit back and think, boy. Imagine how great things would be if we didn't have all these tariffs and retaliatory tariffs flying around. Uh, But look, this is a lot of reasons for everybody left, right and center to be happy. Um, And, uh, you know, hopefully just continues and continues. Good news for the country. And oh, yeah, as I wrote this morning, you know, we're enjoying the lowest unemployment rate in five decades. That's a really nice reelection slogan to have as an option. Uh, I love the phrase there in that story, uh, lowest in a generation. Now, some Greek families like mine, 50 years might be one generation, but uh, usually that's about 20 to 25 years. So uh, it's going Yeah, 49 well. years, we're approaching that second generation. Yeah. <laughs> I would say. And so you'd think, you know, the media would love this. Americans are working. They're making more money. The different sectors are very, very strong. 
Not so much. Poppy Harlow talking to Kevin Hassett, uh, chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, today on CNN. She did start off the report, I will say, by calling it a blockbuster and asking Hassett if he did a jig today, which he said he did. Uh, and then we got questions like these. All right. It's a good number. Yeah. Can't debate that. But I want to dig into it. Yes, we had a gain of manufacturing jobs, but only a gain of 4,000 manufacturing 4, jobs. Last month, we lost 6,000 manufacturing jobs. Monthly before that, we'd had 22,000 manufacturing jobs under this president. Are you concerned about what that means for the sector overall? Because there are some folks that are worried that the tariffs are taking their toll. This is coming home to roost. So here's another thing. I don't think most Americans know the ag sector, farmers. It's not included in this. This is non-farm payroll. And we know the pain that a lot of farmers across the Midwest, my home state of Minnesota, have felt. You've had you know record bankruptcies in the last decade for farms. I'm just wondering if you're at all concerned about that sector here. Um, let me ask you about something else that I think is underreported, and that is the labor share of income, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one thing that is not recovered. Digging pretty far into the cross tabs there, Jim. Kevin, I've got three different questions. Each one will take two minutes for me to get through. Oh, and we're out of time. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Kevin Hassett. <laughs> Well, I did take out his responses, but... Uh. Okay, all right. You know, the, the other thing which is in there, which I, I would note, is that you know, I suppose if, some, if we have similar numbers next month, we're going to get questions like, Mr. Hassett, isn't there a danger that Americans get overworked from too many job opportunities? Or aren't there some Americans who are now paralyzed with indecision by having too many job offers at one time? All right, let's go on to our bad martini now, Jim. And gosh, it was just a couple days ago, as well as last month, where uh, Bill Barr was talking about spying on the Trump campaign and the Democrats and the media were having their vapors and their why I never reactions to that's not spying, it's electronic surveillance. And Jim Comey was asking himself questions, uh, you know, with a high voice in the third person. It was very, very dramatic. And um Turns out there was more spying than we even realized here. Uh, the New York Times had the story yesterday, and it was uh, the ongoing effort to spy on George Papadopoulos uh, by Cambridge professor Stephen Halper. And now there's a new figure in here named Azra Turk. A couple different excerpts from the New York Times here. The conversation at a London bar in September 2016 took a strange turn when the woman sitting across from George Papadopoulos, a Trump campaign advisor, asked a direct question. Was the Trump campaign working with Russia? The woman had set up the meeting to discuss foreign policy issues, but she was actually a government investigator posing as a research assistant, according to people familiar with the operation. The FBI sent her to London as part of the counterintelligence inquiry opened that summer to better understand the Trump campaign's links to Russia. Further on, Mr. Papadopoulos was baffled. There's no way this is a Cambridge professor's research assistant, he recalled thinking, according to his book. In recent weeks, he has said in tweets he believes Ms. Turk may have been working for Turkish intelligence, but provided no intelligence. The day after meeting Ms. Turk, Mr. Papadopoulos met briefly with Mr. Halper at a private London club, and Ms. Turk joined them. The two men agreed to meet again, arranging a drink at the Sofitel Hotel in London's posh West End. During that conversation, Mr. Halper immediately asked about hacked emails and whether Russia was helping the campaign, according to Mr. Papadopoulos's book. Angry over the accusatory questions, Mr. Papadopoulos ended the meeting. The FBI failed to glean any information of value from the encounters, and Ms. Turk returned to the United States. As you point out in the morning jolt today, Jim, Papadopoulos now believes she was not FBI but CIA. Uh, you think that's a dubious claim perhaps on his part, but uh, what do you make of the fact that uh, we still have all these people outraged that Barr would use the term spying and then we get more stories like this? 
Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, I think if you're if you're sending somebody undercover to ask questions and get people to divulge things that is sensitive that they otherwise would not, if that's not spying, <laughs> what is, you know, do you need the James Bond theme in the background <laughs> to make it officially spying or something like that? Um, but yeah, the, the point from Papadopoulos, you know, the, the article comes out in the New York Times and he says, I agree with everything in this superb article except the woman who went by Azra Turk clearly was not FBI. She was CIA and affiliated with Turkish Intel. She could hardly speak English and was tasked to meet me with about my work in the energy sector offshore Israel and Cyprus, which Turkey was competing with. This is odd on a couple of different levels. Uh, one being, um, I mean, look, as far as we know, all this is being investigated by the Department of Justice Inspector General. The CIA has its own Inspector General. Uh, you kind of wonder how much DOJ would have authority to look into what the CIA was doing. Um, that, that's, you know, so that's, that's a little bit weird. The claim she could hardly speak English, well, then how did the conversation go down? Um, that, that, that just seems kind of weird that you know they, they do this. The idea that she's affiliated with Turkish intelligence. Um, if you're either the FBI or the CIA... And you have this very sensitive matter in which you want to know if this, you know, fairly low-level Trump staffer is going to spill the beans that they're secretly working with Russia, and you outsource it to Turkey. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've heard complaints there are jobs Americans won't do anymore, but uh, this seems like a very odd choice. <clears throat> the, the I also, and then you'd send somebody who doesn't speak English very well, like you know, you, this is not the sort of thing you'd want to see something get lost in translation or, or something. So, and finally, this is, let's say, assume this is a code name. This is not this woman's actual name. She works for Turkish intelligence and her code name is Turk. <laughs> You'd think they'd be a little more creative there. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying Papadopoulos is lying. This is probably as he remembers it, but some, something in this really doesn't add up and make sense. Um, so obviously, first of all, the people who freaked out about Barr using the term spying, I think this is now no longer such an unreasonable term that doesn't sound like hyperbole. Can't wait for the Inspector General report to come out. Could come out this month, could come out next month, but apparently it's coming out fairly soon. And hopefully it clears up a great deal. Look, it's possible this is all on the up and up. Allegedly, according to the Mueller report, this came from that Australian uh, official who came into the FBI who had said Papadopoulos had been bragging about this sort of thing. Um, and that's what got the ball rolling on all this stuff. And maybe, maybe this was, you know, the FBI saying, look, this is a serious enough, uh, uh, you know, allegation. We got to dig into this. And that everybody was using their best judgment. This was all good faith, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe not. <laughs> and maybe there's, a, you know, this certainly, if you're the, in, in the FBI and somebody comes to you and says, hey, the party that's challenging your boss's boss uh, might be up to no good. You got to act with you know every bit of caution and discretion and carefulness because we don't want the FBI to become a partisan tool of harassment of the opposition party or something like that. So um, hopefully the IG report gives us a lot of answers. But this idea, this thing that's been said for quite some time that Barr had referred to earlier, look, uh, this this is I think going to meet most people's definitions of spying, and I think that the. Uh, Previous talk from the likes of Chuck Todd and Jeffrey Tuba that this was crazy conspiracy theories. Um, now it doesn't seem like a crazy conspiracy theory at all. It's in the New York Times. The thing that stood out to me, uh, Jim, from Barr's testimony the other day, and specifically talking about the investigation of the investigation, is that he was baffled that no one in the Trump campaign was tipped off first. In other words, if you got a problem or you think something's going on with George Papadopoulos or Carter Page, why not say, hey, 
uh, we got a problem here potentially and go to someone in the campaign who would understand this. And as Andy McCarthy recently said, there were three U.S. attorneys, former U.S. attorneys affiliated with this campaign, Chris Christie, Jeff Sessions and Rudy Giuliani. And so the idea that you would do this uh, surreptitiously rather than go to someone who would understand the issues involved really seems weird. Good heavens, Greg. Don't you understand? They could be in on it, too. <laughs> the Russians are everywhere. Yeah. All right. Let's go to our crazy martini now. Margaret Carlson writing over at the Daily Beast. And, Jim, I think we've noted this over the past few weeks since the grand hype of the rollout of the Beto O'Rourke uh, presidential campaign. But uh, now that his numbers are starting to dwindle and he's not getting bigger crowds and he's not standing on as many tables and he's not getting as much love in the press, um, the bloom is off the rose, it would appear. Margaret Carlson, Beto O'Rourke has flamed out. It's not just me saying it. Polls have shown him slipping for weeks. And on Wednesday, Quinnipiac confirmed the worst. The one-time wonder, Beto O'Rourke, is at 5% behind every other first-tier candidate. You can thank or blame women who make up almost 58% of the primary electorate for Beto's decline. Disproportionately, they don't like him. According to my unscientific poll asking every woman I see, Beto reminds them of the worst boyfriend they ever had. Self-involved. Convinced of his own charm. Chronically late if he shows up at all. Worth a meal or two, but definitely not marriage material. When he should be home with the kids or taking out the trash, he's jamming with his garage band or skateboarding at Whataburger. He's in and out of a funk, which requires long and meaningful runs to clear his head, unquote. So, Jim, you wrote a little bit about this. And uh, what was your question yesterday as we uh, as we discussed this? Where the heck was this last year? Um, now, for those who are wondering, I went back as far as I could tell. First of all, I like Margaret Carlson. We were, you know, used to be on cable news pretty regularly. Uh, for somebody who was not of the right, this is about as, you know, she's a pretty straight shooter. Um, and it's, as far as I could tell, she did not write about Beta O'Rourke last year. So you can't say, oh, Margaret Carlson is, uh, uh, you know, changing her tune on Beto or she was hyping Beto last year or something like that. Daily Beast sure was. And I think it's kind of, what I'd really like to see is some publication look at this and say, hey, you know what? Last year when we covered Beto O'Rourke in the Senate race, we bought into the hype. We convinced ourselves that we were seeing something we wanted to see. Um, we gave him the benefit of the doubt for everything. We weren't interested. And now with the Senate race over, the fact that he's not no longer running against Ted Cruz, who we loathe with the power of a thousand suns going supernova. Now that we see it's, it's the morning after and in the cold light of day, we're looking at Beto and thinking, dear God, what were we thinking? This is a terrible choice. He's kind of a doofus. We're sorry, of Texas. We're sorry, America. This is not Lone Star Jesus. This is not a guy who's ready to ride in on a white horse and save the country. He's kind of a goofball. He keeps standing up on tables. He's kind of annoying. He goes on the Karawakian uh, uh, road trips. His answers are kind of empty. He's glib. The skateboarding and Whataburgers and playing guitar. He's starting to come across like an overgrown teenager. He's the kind of guy who Kamala Harris would put away for a long time. <laughs> so is he done? I mean, the, the, somebody just released a whole batch of polls of a lot of these Democrats head to head with Trump and Beto's up 52-42. Yeah, the funny thing, I don't, it, it's really curious to see. You could argue this is, you know, Jim trying to continue an, an un, unbroken streak of always, uh, always disagreeing with Margaret Carlson. Uh, <laughs> now that she's picking on him, Jim has to defend him. But actually, I think that when we saw the initial reaction to O'Rourke when he was, you know, 
first doing his, you know, standing on tables and counters tour, uh, 2019, <laughs> that we, we laugh at this for being kind of vapid and happy talk and, you know, America's brightest tomorrows are ahead of us. And I believe the children of the future teach them well and let them leave. You know, as we laugh at this, you know, oh, God, it's the same thing Obama was running on. Hope and change. Be a blank slate. Let people project onto you their ideals. But I think that appeals to a lot of people. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who like generic happy talk. They like a blank slate. Um, and, you know, that, that approach worked very, very well for Barack Obama. I don't know if it's going to work quite as well as for Beto O'Rourke. But I don't think you necessarily want to dismiss him totally and completely. Um, fairly or not, the perception... The other thing also I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, Greg, is that the perception of geography as an I sense of where people... Like, people think... Pete Buttigieg is a moderate and they say, well, you know, he's from Indiana. Well, yeah, but South Bend is a really democratic city in Indiana. It's not like Pete Buttigieg is likely to go out and win statewide uh, in, a, in a statewide race. In fact, the one time he did it, he got thrashed by Richard Murdoch. But so people perceive Beto O'Rourke, well, he can't be that liberal because he's from Texas. Now, never mind that he represented El Paso, once again, a very democratic city in a red state. But I have a feeling people perceive Beto O'Rourke to be conservative or, or uh, perceive him to be moderate. They perceive him to be less liberal and progressive than he is. Um, and that could work for him. And again, if you're a blank slate, people will see what they want to see in you. And he, he you know, pulled this off pretty well uh, for a good chunk of 2018. So my answer is, look, it's still early. We've got to see what the debates are like. Um, but don't don't underestimate empty charisma, America. <laughs> you know, that's... <laughs> That's a dangerous combination, and uh, I, you know, again, I don't know if we'll get, necessarily get the nomination, um, but I think it's, uh, you know, as much as I enjoyed Carlson's column, and God, it, it was funny and vicious, and we are nodding along at every assessment, almost every woman does have some ex-boyfriend who reminds her, you know, who, who has these kind of traits, um, you know, it, it's enjoyable, but yeah, don't, uh, don't, don't apply last rights to the O'Rourke campaign quite just yet. No, I think that's right. And I think part of the reason the media is turning on him is because they spent so much attention drooling over him last year when there was, uh, you know, midterms for the House and the Senate. And so now they feel like they know Beto. So now they're going after the new flavors and, and, and pumping them up, like Mayor Pete and, and some of these others who are jumping into the race and haven't been on the national stage the way that uh, Beto was last year. So we'll find out. I, I remember 2012. Uh, remember when there was always the the other Republican who was uh, nipping at Mitt Romney's heels? Newt had a few weeks. Kane had a few weeks. Santorum was there uh, right around the time the voting actually started. So I don't know if the media is going to fall in love with somebody new every month. But uh, I got to figure that the uh, the Mayor Pete uh, media boom is probably going to fade here at some point, and it's just a matter of who's going to be the next one in line. Yeah, uh, you know, it, what's, the interesting thing is you used to have, like this time of year, if you, if you covered presidential campaigns, was actually kind of the more fun one um, because they weren't spending so much time uh, reacting to each other or attacking each other. This is when you could write the profile pieces um, and you kind of introduce the candidate who's largely unknown outside of their home states to the American public. And, uh, the, you know, you, you get to tell a life story. It's kind of what I was trying to do with these 20 things columns earlier this year. Uh, for everyone wondering, by the way, you'll notice I haven't had readers writing in saying, hey, when am I going to get my 20 things about Tim Ryan uh, or Eric Swalwell or Michael Bennett or any of these people? Um, you know, right now, like half of our listeners, Greg, are saying, wait, are those real guys or is Jim just making up names right now? 
Seth Bolton, yes. He's in Yeah, tune. I mean, like, you know, so there, there, one is that there's just too many of them. Um, but there, there was kind of a sense of, see, oh, every, every person came to the race with a life story and probably some great triumphs in their life, probably some great setbacks and disappointments. And, you know, regardless of party, you could write an interesting story with that. One with so many, I don't. I feel like a lot of you know, people. There's exhaust. I think some of the readership and, and the audience for this sort of thing is exhausted already. Um, you have 20 candidates. I don't think there's. I think in policy, there's not huge differences amongst them. Um, I think they're all kind of. A lot of them are. You know, probably like of the 20, 17 are competing for the progressive lane. Uh, that this is this is not how a primary is supposed to work. Uh, and I think it might. You know, I, it was like we're we're we'll see how things look. You know, four months from now, five months from now, six months from now when it gets closer to voting time and my guess is that the 10 the bottom 10 realize they got to do something fast or else they'll you know uh they'll be lesser known than you know the greatest candidate of all time in my mind bobby jindal <laughs> yes exactly right they're going to be in the pre pre debate if they're not careful because uh, we're now that we're over 20 we're probably running that risk uh, so you know it's a, it's a challenge to stand out as part of a massive ensemble with something like the Democratic presidential campaign. And it's not easy to do unless you were this character in a massive ensemble from one of the greatest movie franchises ever. Yes, Chewbacca. Actually, the actor Peter Mayhew, who played Chewbacca in the original three movies and I believe in the uh, prequels, or at least the third prequel, um, Revenge of the Sith, has passed away at the age of 74. Here's another scene of him with uh, Han Solo in Jabba the Hutt's dungeon. Chewie, is that you? Chewie! I can't see, pal. What's going on? So, Jim, in all those movies, not one intelligible word, yet one of the most <laughs> beloved and fiercely loyal characters you will ever find, Chewbacca. Uh, at no point have I ever been disappointed in Chewbacca. And uh, Peter Mayhew was apparently great with the fans at all the shows and uh, really uh, well-liked. Uh, Harrison Ford with a very uh, moving statement yesterday. So, uh it's been over 40 years now since the first Star Wars, and unfortunately we're starting to lose them. We lost Carrie Fisher, obviously lost Alec Guinness a while back and so forth. So uh, Peter Mayhew, uh, sorry to see him go. Yeah, um, I, I do remember a uh, writing a couple of years ago. We were geeks like us were arguing about the prequels, and I was making fun of Jar Jar Binks. But I made the observation that, like, you know, think about how much you know, deep fan affection there was for Chewbacca, which, by the way, was a... Um, uh, inspired to, by George Lucas by his dog, which he used to drive around with him in the passenger seat, and he used to think about how neat it would be to drive around and see a car with you know a person and a dog. They looked like they were two people. Um, oh, by the way, yes, the dog was named Indiana, which turned into a joke in one of the Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> um, but you think about like people say, oh, people never knew Peter Mayhew's face. Now you look at his eyes. You know they, they were the eyes of Chewbacca, and that there was no makeup, there was no CGI back then. You know it was a big furry suit, and Peter Mayhew had to make you believe that this was a giant furry alien that was like cross between a dog and a bear and a gorilla. You know. Um, and it worked. And, and the whole body language and everything that, you know, like people you felt like, you know, Chewbacca reminded you of your most beloved pet you'd ever had. The big brother who would defend you. You wished you'd had um, there. There was a you know, it was a, it was an amazing performance done entirely underneath a mask. So maybe you can make an argument that, you know, this is only equaled by like some of the folks in the Planet of the Apes movies and, and things like that. Look, it's not easy to have an amazing performance 
when the audience can't see your face. And Peter Mayhew did this. So uh, we will raise a glass to him. Um, I, you know, we will all miss his statement of, <laughs> um, and uh, hope that, uh, you know, he left something that will never be forgotten by millions upon millions of people. Yes, yes, very well said. We should point out probably those clips came from Lucasfilm or 20th Century Fox or whatever just to protect us legally here. So uh, please don't sue us and come on, we're giving credit to a great actor. Exactly. Jim, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great weekend, everyone, and tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.